I'd like to read Luke 9, 28 through 50. So hang on, buckle up, follow along, and here we go. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word in our language readily accessible to us at the click of a mouse, the push of a button, the turn of a page. We think of those around the world who are awaiting their Bible and their language. We pray for those missionaries and translators who are working on those Bibles. We pray that you would bless their work. We thank you for the responsibility and the privilege of having your word in our language. Father, we, we think this morning of these words that we read. Sometimes can seem so distant from reality, from our reality. And sometimes they are just what we need. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would lift the veil and that we would receive your word, that we would listen, as Fred said, intensely, and that we would 
here that we would work at getting out of this passage what you want us to. Help us to receive your word with glad and happy hearts. We think of the song that we sang this morning and we turn it into a prayer. You, Jesus, are the glorious Christ. You are the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequaled. Your love beyond all heights. No greater sacrifice than when you laid down your life. So we join the song of angels who praise you day and night. Glorious Christ. Jesus, be exalted, be lifted up in how we hear this morning. Holy Spirit, come and do your work with the words coming out of my lips. Take them to the hearer's ears and bring them down into our hearts that we might dwell on the greatness of this passage and that we might put it into practice with our hands this week. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder what you think of when you think of greatness, uh, when you think of a sports great, or when you think of a great artist, a great musician, a great person in your life, a great person in history. What normally comes to your mind? What makes one great? And oftentimes, it's great events, great achievements, uh, superhuman at times, um, insight, uh, the right notes put together to make a beautiful symphony, the right movements of the body to make a great dance. Hardly when we think of greatness do we think of service. Greatness to us is achievement. Greatness to us is works. And there is greatness in those things. Jesus is going to, in this passage, bring together both glory and true greatness and completely redefine how we should see greatness. Now, we are tempted in our day um, by um, our own media consumption, by our own, basically, the ways that we've been trained to recognize greatness, to see greatness as big and bold and flashy and great and on TV and on a screen. We need to reorient ourselves this morning to true glory and true greatness. This is no small thing because on it hinges our understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the most written about, um, the most uh, read about person in the history of the world. He has been understood in so many different ways. And today we need to see from his lips, from his mouth, from his actions, who he is. Because nothing could be more important than that we understand who Jesus is. In fact, that has been the theme of the book of Luke in the last few passages that we have gone through. Pastor AJ last week talked about that very question when Jesus posed it to his disciples, who do you say that I am? This was very important. In fact, he wanted them to own it. Who do you say that I am? Was followed his question, who does everybody else say that I am? And after that was answered, Jesus went in for the kill and gave, made them take a stand on who they thought that he was. And Peter said, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah, the coming king that was promised in the Old Testament. And immediately Jesus answers with, and I'm going to suffer and die. <laughs> Excuse me? What? 
How could that be? This is what we'll see now as we have these two things juxtaposed, this, this dying, this suffering and rising, but then also this glorious trip on a mountaintop in Galilee that we see here in verses 28 through 36. So if you take a look at your notes, point number one is Jesus is the glorious Son of God. Listen up. Jesus is the glorious Son of God. Listen up. This is what's commonly referred to as the transfiguration. And probably not a word you used this week. Maybe you did. That would be very impressive. If you did, please let me know. But transfigured, transfiguration is not a common word. In fact, um, it's a word that we have used to translate some of the words used in the other Gospels. In Matthew and Mark, Luke actually uses a different word for us that we'll see here in a minute. But sometimes it's easy to go to seminal moments in the Bible that we know and to kind of say, yep, know that one. Got it. Rather, I would like us to take a deeper look today at this event and the ones that follow. And we must keep in mind what we have learned in the past because verse 28 says that now about eight days after these sayings. Well, we don't know what these sayings are unless we go back to the previous passage about the kingdom of God being seen, about gaining the world, losing your soul, about Jesus being the coming Messiah. And it is after these sayings that Jesus goes on a hike. He goes on a hike with friends and he takes only Peter, John, and James. Not the other nine, just the inner circle. These three who have already been on a special trip with him to raise a girl from the dead. Jesus allowed them to see that one firsthand. And now he allows these three to see something on a mountaintop in Galilee. And when he goes, he goes on the mountain. You'll see in, the verse, in verse 28, he goes to pray. And Luke makes an, uh, a special emphasis on praying in the life of Jesus so that we might see Jesus' constant retreat to prayer. As he's praying, something incredible happens on this mountain. What mountain is it? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us which mountain, which means we should immediately say that it is not of first importance which mountain this was. There's a couple of options. Traditionally, uh, the Mount, Mount Tabor in... Uh, which, do I have Mount Hermon first? Yeah, there's Mount Tabor. This is in um, the Galilee region. It juts out of the middle of a valley below Nazareth. Jesus would have grown up seeing this mountain sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, on top of the mountain, there is a church called the Church of the Transfiguration uh, with some beautiful artwork and built on a 4th century church. So we've got 1,600 years of history here. Traditionally, this is where um, it happened. I don't think it was. It's not that big a deal. I think it was this next mountain, Mount Hermon, which is in the north uh, of Israel. It borders today Syria and Lebanon. It is huge. It has snow on the—you can kind of see that. has snow on the top much of the year. And it happens to be near where Matthew and Mark tell us the previous passage occurred near Caesarea Philippi. Whatever the case, Jesus goes up on the mountain. And this is a significant uh, occurrence throughout the scripture because this is not the first time a prophet has gone up on a mountain. And going up on the mountain frequently means in scripture going to meet with God. In other cultures, it frequently means going to meet with the gods. In fact, we know from Greek mythology that there's a special mountain in Greece called Mount 
Olympus, where the gods dwell, where the gods reside. So this is not um, peculiar to the Jewish faith, but of course what is peculiar is that there's only one god on top of the mountain, not many. As uh, Jesus and the three go up the mountain, we see so many parallels to the Old Testament. And I want you to pay attention to those as we read. Look at verse 29. Jesus is in the middle of praying. And as he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Altered is not transformed, okay? So Jesus isn't being turned into something that he wasn't before. Jesus isn't being made into something new. In fact, what is happening is more like an unveiled, an unveiling. Jesus, Michael Card says, actually said that Peter, James, John, and James are only seen to the core of what Jesus has been all along. In fact, we sing this every Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This is God taking on human flesh. And here, for just a brief moment, Jesus reveals who he really is and who he has always been, and that is glorious, the Son of God. His face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. I don't like the ESV here. The NIV says bright as a flash of lightning. That is a cool thought. I mean, that is like right there on top of a mountain, by the way, right? He becomes as bright, as brilliant, you might say, as a flash of lightning. He is, he is altered. He is transfigured. And then two more guests show up, which is a very hard thing to do on top of a mountain to experience two people out of the blue. Here come two guys. Who knows how John and James and Peter knew it was Moses and Elijah, but somehow they knew. Two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, can you imagine just the, just the, the weirdness of this? It's a four-person hiking trip to pray, and all of a sudden, it's six, and one of the guys that you know and have spent time with is glowing with radiation. This is weird. This is really different. In fact, this is a whole lot different than basically all of Jesus' ministry because his ministry has been very gritty, dirty, touching lepers, healing blind people, living in a podunk, hick town, far from the center of power. What is going on here? Well, we, we need to look at the two guys that were there, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, interestingly, both had face-to-face, as it were. Uh, they, they saw God face-to-face, in some instances, on top of mountains. In fact, both of them saw God on Mount Sinai. Moses went up to the mountain and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, if you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, to meet with God, to get the Ten Commandments, to hear how to build the tabernacle, to give God's people the law. Elijah, prior to his climb up Mount Sinai, had a big experience on another mountain in the north of Israel called Mount Carmel. And on top of that mountain, Elijah faced 800 plus false prophets, and beat them in a contest to see which God was the true God. Elijah then went to Mount Sinai and met with God in a different way. Moses 
was buried by God himself on top of a mountain, Mount Nebo, overlooking the land of Canaan. Interestingly, Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind very near the same mountain that Moses was buried at. These guys share a whole lot of similarities. It is also very common to associate Moses with the law and Elijah with the prophets. And Luke specifically uses the phrase the law and the prophets to refer to the Old Testament. This is the old and the new, face-to-face, similar experiences on a mountain in Israel. Blinding light. What are they talking about? What are they there to do? Are they just there like in some weird painting? Showing up? What are they, what are they doing? Well, you know what Luke tells us that Matthew and Mark don't is they have a conversation. Can you imagine that would be a conversation you'd want to be in on? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Please just go, guys. Go ahead. I'm just going to listen. Tell me the story. What was it like, right? This is an amazing, amazing group of people. Verse 31 says that Moses and Elijah also appear in glory. So whether or not they're shining like dazzling white, lightning, whatever, they've just come from glory. They've come from the presence of God and now are with God the Son. And verse 31 says they spoke of his, what's that word? Departure. The Greek word for that is exodus. Sounds a whole lot like the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. They're speaking of his Exodus. Wait, who's there? Moses. Oh, he's the main character in the book of Exodus. He's talking to Jesus about his Exodus. Very interesting. They begin to speak of his departure, his Exodus, which, end of verse 31, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. How do you accomplish a departure? Well, Jesus is talking with them about his Exodus. Maybe Moses reminded Jesus of his own exodus. And they begin to speak of what is to happen in Jerusalem in the days to come. Uh, in our next passage, uh, in two weeks, we'll see that Jesus now shifts his ministry as he sets his face, as he heads toward Jerusalem, where he will accomplish his exodus, his departure. What does that include? I think that it includes all the fullness of what Jesus is going to do, his crucifixion where he leads his people from death to life. Just like Moses took God's people from certain death through the waters of the Red Sea to life. Jesus is going to die. He's, spoiler alert, he's going to rise again. He's going to ascend in glory from a mountaintop back into heaven. He will depart in this way. Jesus is speaking of the plans with two of his generals, Moses and Elijah. What a conversation. Now, this is my favorite part because now we get to see it from the other guy's perspective. Can you imagine being there? I love figuring out what these guys are doing. What are these guys doing? Are they taking out their phones? Are they Instagramming this? Are they getting it out on Twitter as quick as they can? What are they doing? Are they finding a rock so they can carve it? What are they, what are they doing? Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. (laughs) Now that's quite a way to wake up. Why were they tired? Well, they climbed a mountain. That could be part of it. Okay. They climb a mountain with Jesus. Um, Perhaps there's something to do with just the intensity of this moment that just kind of like knocks them out. 
Um, whatever the case is, it seems like they wake up in the midst of this and see the glory. But when they became fully awake, which I imagine did not take very long, it's probably better than coffee, to wake up to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah having a conversation in bright light, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, it seems that they woke up and Moses and Elijah are about to leave. I don't know, why, why are they walking? Don't they just beam them up? I don't know what happens, but they're, they're leaving. And when they wake up and they see these two guys, and, and Peter, as he is wont to do, as some of us who are like Peter are wont to do, he just needs to open his mouth. <laughs> Master, it is good that we are here. Uh-huh, yep. <laughs> That's right, Peter. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and then my favorite phrase in this passage, not knowing what he said. <laughs> Peter just has that need. He's got to get something out there. I'm going to speak. Nah, what did I just say? I don't know. He, he speaks this out. What's he want to do? I think what he wants to do is he wants to build some tents and let's have a camping trip. Let's just not make this a hike. Let's stay here. I'd really like to meet Moses and Elijah. Let's hang out. Let's have a conversation. What were you guys talking about? I'd like to stay here. Let's put some tents up. Um, Peter was missing it because what was the most important thing was about to happen. Because as Moses and Elijah leave and they leave Jesus alone, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Again, all these echoes of the Old Testament. When Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai, what does Mount Sinai look like? It is covered with clouds and lightning and thunder. How did the Israelites make it through the wilderness with Moses as their leader? Moses did not have a GPS. They just followed the cloud. The pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness. At night, it was a flaming fire. During the day, it was a cloud Jesus is, uh, God is often described as coming with the clouds. The Son of Man in Daniel 7, which happens to be Jesus' favorite uh, designation for himself, comes with the clouds of glory. There's all kinds of intertextuality going on, thing, all these different things connecting throughout all these books of the Bible. And a cloud comes and they are afraid and they are right to be afraid. And then a voice comes out of the cloud. Can you just imagine that? A voice. Did it speak Aramaic? What, did it, did it, was it just a booming thunder and they heard the words in their head? I don't know. But this is an amazing experience. A voice came out of the cloud, verse 35, saying, I wish I was James Earl Jones right now. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Who's there? Three guys. God speaks to Peter, John, and James. He gives them a message. Listen to him. And if it weren't enough that Peter had already identified Jesus as the Christ of God, the Messiah, now God himself confirms it. God himself confirms it. What's he call Jesus? He says that he is my son. This echoes Psalm 2, verse 7, that speaks of this one to come, this son of the living God. He calls him further, my 
chosen one, which echoes Isaiah 42.1 that we studied last year. That there was one to come who was God's chosen one in whom his spirit was, who would accomplish all these things that Jesus begins to accomplish in his earthly ministry. This is who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He is the chosen one. If you had any doubt, he's shining like lightning. He was speaking to Moses and Elijah as equals. <laughs> right? I mean, the Moses and Elijah show up, you're just kind of like, whoa, hey guys. And Jesus is just speaking to them. Of course, they're not his equals because they leave and then God points out his son. He says, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to listen to him. This seems to echo Deuteronomy 18, 15. Where Moses told the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Some versions say you must listen to him. Wow. All of these things coming together in this one moment on top of the mountain. Can you imagine if they had come down and said, hey guys, guess what? We saw Moses and Elijah, but that was nothing compared to what we saw with Jesus. However, they didn't do that. Because in verse 36, the voice leaves, the clouds dissipate, and Jesus is found Alone, and Peter, James, and John kept silent and told no one in those days of anything of what they had seen. Why did they tell nobody? Would anybody believe them? These fishermen from Galilee? We went on a mountain, guys, and we saw Moses and Elijah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they told no one in those days there would come a day in which they would tell. In fact, today is that day in which we are being told this from God's word. We are hearing about what happened. Jesus is the glorious son of God. Listen up. Are you listening to Jesus? God's command, it's not a suggestion, right? You might want to listen to this guy. God's command is listen to him. Not just on Sunday. Listen to him when you have a big decision to make at work. Listen to him when you're disciplining your kids. Listen to him when you're watching TV, when you're interacting with the culture. Listen to Jesus. Make sure that listening to Jesus is your priority over listening to other voices. There are lots of other voices to listen to. We're flooded with voices. Are you listening to Jesus? And by the way, I have a really good suggestion on how to do that. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, men wrote these words down. And 2,000 years later, we still have them. They've been preserved. God, in his grace and mercy, has preserved them for us. Listen to Jesus in the scriptures. Point number two after the transfiguration is Jesus' majestic power is astonishing. Jesus' majestic power is astonishing. Apparently it took a day and a night to come down because verse 37 says that on the next day when they come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Of course, this always happened, right? 
There's Jesus. Here's the great crowd. And a man in the crowd, can you imagine this? A man in the crowd is crying out. He's screaming for Jesus' attention. He's begging of his own words here to look at my son for he is my only child. The only son of this man is demon-possessed. The father loves his only son and is desperate for him to be healed. So he goes to God's only son for healing. Now, notice what the man says in verse 39, the details here. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. In verse 40, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now that should ring a bell. Turn the page, or maybe it's on the same page. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. What had just happened in the recent past? A mission trip to the towns of Galilee in which the 12 apostles went out. And what were they supposed to do? Hmm. Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons. And to cure diseases, of which it seems this boy has a disease and a demon. One of the other Gospels describes this as epilepsy. It's like demonic epilepsy. And yet, the disciples couldn't cast it out. That is an interesting statement. They couldn't cast it out. Even though they had previously been given power and authority over all demons, now the one who God has showered with bright, blinding light has said, listen to him, comes down from the mountain. And what is his answer? Verse 41, he's angry. Calm down, Jesus. It's a big crowd down here. You went on a little vacation. And this guy's son is all messed up. Come on. Have a little compassion. Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to the dad who just said, My only son is going to die. This demon possessed. You, what? What is happening? That seems very harsh. Well, Jesus is referencing, I, I think, the crowd that came with the man and even his disciples. It seems that he is pointing out their faithlessness, their twisted and messed up view of who he is and what he has come to do. He is pointing out to the people that they must have faith. Perhaps the crowd was there to see another circus act. Ooh, Jesus is going to do it again. This is fun. Jesus wants them to focus in on their faith not on the spectacle. He turns to the, the father and says, bring your son here. Now this is even crazier because while they go get the boy, in the midst of that, the demon throws the boy on the ground. Just comes over this boy and throws him on the ground in front of Jesus. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. What an amazing scene. The power of God in the hands of Jesus, and rightly so, 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. And I, I read that this week, and I said, man, when was the last time I was astonished 
at the majesty of God? Or am I just kind of casually observing? Or maybe I'm not living my life in a way that allows me to see the majesty of God that I should be astonished at. Am I positioning myself in my life, in my hours, in my job, in my family to see the majesty of God? What would that look like? What would that look like? Maybe it would look like David in Psalm 30 who said this, You have turned for me my morning into dancing. Rhythmic movement. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's the reaction to the majesty of God, the astonishment. Wow! You love me? You would do that for me? You would give me this family? You would give me this church family? You would give me this job? You would give me... Or do we expect that? Because God, we deserve that from God. Because we're pretty good people. You know. God, give me that. Yeah, okay, thanks. Are we astonished like Paul, who after contemplating some of the most tangled theological issues in Romans 9, 10, and 11, does not say, oh man, that's hard to, hard to understand. I think I'll go watch some Netflix. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. That should be our response to theology. That should be our response to thinking through what the Bible says God has done for us. You are the glorious Christ. Right? Let's get through the song. Are we astonished at the majesty of God? We couldn't sing some of those words today. Because to think about what that means, that God didn't spare his son for me. Do you remember Genesis 22 when God tells Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain? That only son that you waited for 25 long years to get, and now I want you to go sacrifice him on top of a mountain? Abraham, the example of faith to us, ties his own son to the altar and raises the knife. And God stops him. God spares Isaac's life. But God did not spare his own son's life. When the knife was raised, God did not stop it. God gave his only son so that we might be rescued. How astonishing. Because you and I are worms. That's biblical, by the way. That's what David says. We are undeserving. We don't deserve God's grace. That's why it's grace. Are you astonished at that? Or is it ho-hum grace? Saved a wretch like me. Ho-hum grace. No, it's amazing grace. So I thought, what if we prayed more regularly for God to astonish us? What if we asked God to help us see what should astonish us? 
What if we ask God to wake us up to see his majesty? Because I haven't seen any blinding, flashing lights on Jesus, the Son of God, recently. I haven't seen a a demon-possessed person. Maybe we should be doing that more often. No, what's going on here? Listen to Jesus. Look at what he's doing and be astonished at the majesty of God. Let's work on that this week. Let's work on that. Let's let's look for the majesty of God. Uh, Pastor AJ was just uh, watching uh, Earth 2 came out. Was that BBC? Who made that? Whatever that, 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 that earth is HD, and you see the hummingbird's wings flapping and these crazy animals and stuff. Man, watch that and think, wow. God made, he fashioned that thing. He made that. Astonishing. Point number three starts in the second half of verse 43. And it is this, for Jesus and for us, suffering is a hard truth. For Jesus and for us, suffering is a hard truth. Now think of Peter, James, and John. Man, they just went to the mountaintop, literally, and saw Jesus. They're probably amped. They're not going to tell anybody what they saw, because it might not be believed, but they, they know what they saw. And Jesus comes down the mountain, and man, he gives them a great pep talk, because he says, I am going to die. <laughs> yeah! All right, let's go! <laughs> this isn't a win-one for the Gipper. This is... I am going to die. The person you just saw transfigured on the mountain. Look at verse 43. But while they were all marveling, like, Jesus, pick your timing better. Jesus cast out the demon. It's almost like he cast out the demon. People are like, oh, God is here. He's doing stuff. And Jesus goes, hey, guys, come here. Huddle up. I'm going to be turned over to the hands of men. Okay? Just want to make you, let you know, remind you. This is the second time in the gospel. I'm going to be turned over to the hands of men. Yeah, what? It's kind of jarring dissonance here uh this doesn't match up with this jesus says not only that but he look how he says it to them verse 44 let these words sink into your ears (laughs) turn your head here they go let them sink in there it sounds a lot like he who has ears to hear let him hear hear this guys the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men this one who was glorified on the mountain is going to be handed and delivered over to the hands of men. Verse 45, before we are too quick to judge, let us just remember how often this is true of us. But they did not understand this saying. But they did not understand this saying. Now that seems to give blame to the disciples for not understanding. And somehow in this passage we see, uh, as we see throughout Scripture, this balance of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty placed hand in hand, next to each other. They did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. What? And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They didn't want, well, I think I know what that means, and I don't want to ask. Okay, we are seeing, I think, God giving us now, 2,000 years later, the opportunity to see in the disciples' lives what often happens in our lives, but we don't see it. They don't understand. They're afraid to ask. So let's just kind of pretend it never happened. <laughs> but see, we can't, we can't approach life like that. We can't approach life like that because things are happening. People are dying. Cancer is being diagnosed. 
Accidents are happening. Suffering is real. We're not Christian scientists who deny that any of that ever happens. I had a mentor when I was a young man whose grandmother was a Christian science uh, cult. And she had a broken leg for decades. And it hobbled her. But you know what she said? I don't have a broken leg. Why? Because, because there's no suffering. There's no real suffering. God's going God's gonna to deliver me. Well, that's, just, that's just not real. That's not approaching life in the way it happens. How many of you have suffered recently? How many of you have been to a funeral recently? That person's gone, right? How many of you watched the news recently? It's all good. Now look where he goes in this next passage here at the end. Point number four, get truly low to get truly great. And here is where the connection is between glory, true glory, true greatness. Jesus is going to combine these two, what seem, are seemingly paradoxes, contradictory things, and put them together. Because immediately after this, apparently disciples who are afraid to ask Jesus about what's going to happen, get into an argument about who's the greatest. That's really poor timing. They couldn't cast out the demon. They couldn't cast out the demon. Which one of us is the best? Well, sorry to tell you guys, but you, none of you could cast out the demon. So none of you are. You all lose. Fail. This is like a bunch of 30-year-old former athletes arguing about who was the best in high school. <laughs> well, you know, 40 pounds ago. And... uh Just stop. <laughs> Just stop. These guys have nothing to brag about, but they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. But Jesus, in his grace, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus flips everything on its head about what true greatness really is. This is just like the disciples. We see them do this time and time again. It's not the last time we'll see them have this argument. And it's not the last time you and I probably won't have this argument. If not in person, maybe up here. When we observe that person in the church who just is, oh, that's a good try. Too bad they're not as good a minister as I am. Boy, if that person could really be a little bit more like, I don't know, me, maybe they, they wouldn't make such a mess of things. Am I the only one that has those thoughts? Is that... Oops. <laughs> Jesus flips everything on its head. He brings a child in. Not to say that the child is worthless, but to say the child has very little to offer. The child has very little to offer when we're speaking about greatness. The child doesn't have a job. The child can't build very many things. The child can't achieve very many things. The child has very little to offer in terms of greatness, and yet Jesus uses this little child as an example of two things. One is basically be like this child in your trust. We know that children trust to a fault, right? But they, 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 they're trusting. Okay, I believe you. Whereas adults go, meh, show me then maybe, maybe I'll believe you. And that may be good in some discerning moments with other humans, but when it comes to God, that is not a good attitude to take. Prove it, God. Go for it. Show me you are who you say you are. <laughs> All right. Careful what you ask for. 
Become like the child in that recognizing you have very little to offer God. God's not looking for you to be on it. He's not like, oh man, I really need that guy on my team. Things would go a lot better for my eternal plan if I had Andrew Gilmore on my team. That's not what he's thinking. Be like the little child. And then also receive a child in Jesus' name. Receiving this child, okay, is, is understanding that we, we, are, we are all serving God. And in order to be great, we must receive others that are like us. They don't have much to offer, but we receive them anyway. We, we, we bring them along with us. Rather than elevating ourselves and separating ourselves from these, oh, you're a new Christian. Oh, isn't that cute? You can't offer anything. I've been a Christian for 30 years, though, and let me tell you how it's done. Now, we receive these little ones to us. We receive them. We train them. We mentor them. We disciple them. We show them what it's like to be a child of God. And then Jesus says, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. How do you get great? Get low. Jesus shows this in kneeling, literally kneeling, taking off some of his clothes so that he can wash his disciples' dirty, stinky feet. And he says, this is how you show your greatness, by serving. Get low to get truly great. And again, I love this because now we see the disciples show us that they don't get it again. In verse 49, here at the end, John answered. <laughs> so he's, he's responding to Jesus saying, Go low, be the least. And John's answer to being least is, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. I mean, hold on, John. They're casting out demons? But you guys couldn't? Oh, you couldn't cast out demons. But they are. Huh. Interesting. Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. They missed it again. <laughs> okay? They tried to set up us versus them. We are better. We are the only ones who are right. And that guy over there, he shouldn't be doing that. We have to be careful of factions. We have to be very careful of factions. I disagreed with some of the things that Billy Graham said in the positions that he took. I would say that some of them were unwise and maybe even damaging to the spread of, his, of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, praise God for Billy Graham, a broken vessel being used by God. Let's, I mean, let, let's, let's be discerning, but let's not critique every person that's not like us or does ministry exactly the way that we do. <laughs> they still sing out of hymnals? <laughs> They don't have my favorite ministry at their church. They don't read the same authors that I read. They don't read Christian books. Let's tone down the criticism and the rhetoric and see what God is doing in other people, in other believers, in other followers of God that do things differently than we do. Again, I'm not talking about violating. I'm not talking about heresy here. <laughs> okay? We need to have our antenna up for that. But let's, let's be okay with partnering with other people who are serving the Lord Jesus and serving other people. Billy Graham would often say, I'm just a country preacher. <laughs> just a country preacher who's preaching to like 250 million people in person. Yeah, 
you know. I'd hope to maybe someday preach before, I don't know, a few thousand? Like total? <laughs> That'd be great. God, please do that. What, what, what a way to, to go low. To be recognized now is truly great. I'm pretty sure that Billy didn't want his body to be interred at the capital of the United States of America. Okay? But listen, that is good because that is a recognition of the greatness of the man because he submitted himself to serving God. Let that be an example for all of us. Paul said this in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ, listen to this, out of selfish ambition. That's not good. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Please kill them. Please write epistles against them. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Can you imagine Paul saying that? That's an incredible statement. Now, we should, I think, desire to be great. This sermon is not about not desiring to be great. Like, this is not like give up all your ambitions. No, 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 no. Be great. Just do it the right way. Go about doing it the right way. Achieve greatness by going low, by being a servant. Desire to be great and follow Jesus' route there. Jesus' route included a cross. Jesus' route included loss, included not running away from suffering. Become a servant, become a slave, be prepared that maybe your greatness will never be recognized by anybody except for Jesus. And that's enough. God sees true greatness and he is greatly pleased by it, whether or not anybody else is. Let's pray. Father, we want to, we do, we want to be great. But turn our ambitions to the right direction. Help us to point them to you. Help us to achieve true greatness by being servants. Help Village Bible Church in all of our brokenness and weakness and sin to follow you as best we can, picking each other up, forgiving one another, teaching one another, grabbing the little ones and bringing them along with us, training them to maturity. Lord, help us to truly be great by being a servant of all. Help us to do that this week at our homes, at our jobs, in our schools, in our neighborhoods in our organizations and clubs. Help us to aim for true greatness by getting low. In Jesus' name, amen.